0: Two crees in a pod. Two crees in a pod. Two crees in a pod. Natani hey. means. Yeah. Let's go. They pushed us to this point. Frustrations of a common man. Manifested destiny, preaching, pledge the promised land. I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor. Like, what's the use of my kids can't taste clean water? A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice. Fighting to be heard so we make them hear our voice. Remember ancestors' anguish like me in our veins hear it in a language when they are kitchen for the rain I am product of people that persevere persecution, paint me so creator sees me if I go out shooting experience our pain when our women disappear daily, anxious to be angry pacifists might hate me, trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me we move in silence cover over the night learning from the woods, in the forest tracking enemies in the woods, reincarnations of warriors riding for salvation or are we false prophets when we submit to temptations, colonization is a hell of a drug we all seem to go crazy when we fall in love i said <laughs> colonization is a hell of a drug we all seem to go crazy when we fall in love i said colonization is a hell of a drug we all seem to go crazy when we fall in love, we to we fall in love. welcome to two crees in a pod i biggest sees nitsigasen kinukomasa kotsinia my name is Amber Dion and I'm from the Cahewan Cree Nation here in Treaty 6 Territory. I'm a mother, a social worker, and assistant professor with McEwen University School of Social Work, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host.
1: Welcome, my name is Terry Sunjins, I'm from Salt Lake Cree Nation, and I'm the Director of Indigenous Initiatives in Kia Watson at McEwen University.
0: We are so honored that you chose to join us today.
1: So welcome to episode 4. In light of Indigenous Peoples Day, we have invited Dr. Cindy Blackstock to talk to us here on Two Crees in the Pod. Dr. Cindy Blackstock is from Gitsan First Nations um, and is a university professor at McGill University in the School of Social Work and is also the executive director of the First Nations Caring Society. Um, Thank you, Cindy, for joining us today. We're very honoured and very excited to have you here. You're definitely a hero in our eyes in the work that you've done in this country. Um, We'd like to start just by letting you introduce yourself in the best way that you can. Um, But also, I guess one of my own personal questions is in, in, in doing that is also sharing a little bit about why you're here and what brought you to this point what if there was something earlier on in your life that may have shifted in you that that brought you to the work that you do today
2: all right well it's an honor to join you I'm on unceded Algonquin territory here in Ottawa and um, I'm a member of the Good Sand First Nation I grew up all over in northern BC primarily bush and in small communities, going to the reserve was like going to a big town for us. (laughs) um, And so that was my early existence. And one of the things that I grew up in the 1960s and 70s, and it was really clear that there was a deep level of racism back then. I remember even as a young child that there was a cap on my potential. That First Nations, or Indians as we were called back in the mm-hmm. day, uh, would only grow up to be on welfare. That you'd only grow up to be a drunk Indian. Mm-hmm. The expectations of you were uh, very low. And it had nothing to do with where, the way I saw myself or where I wanted to, to be in the world. And at the same time, and kind of linked to the contemporary moment, there was the civil rights movement happening in the United States. And I'd say see these same uh, non-Indigenous community members who would have these low expectations of Indians and this um, kind of stereotypical negative judgment of Indians. Uh, those were the same people who saw the injustice quite starkly in the United States. Mm-hmm wonder, what was going on here? And at first I asked myself the question, what did we do wrong? Because as a little child, when people treat you badly, you think that you've done something wrong to deserve it. And uh, once I started to realize that it wasn't really about doing something wrong, it was about this bigger thing that we're struggling with today of systemic racism that I was kind of compelled into a process of justice. And I think one of the things that I've always centered my work around is when people come up against a complex problem, uh, my mom always said, look for the obvious because almost no one does. Mm -hmm. And came to the inequalities that First Nations children on reserve were experiencing. It was obvious and yet it was normalized Uh, in broader society. But I would even go so far as to say it was normalized by First Nations on reserve as well, and by First Nations leadership to a large degree. This idea that we were always only worthy of getting less and should be thankful if uh, the government threw us a few crumbs, uh, just never added up in my mind. I, I looked at those kids and I thought, you know what, each one of you is sacred. And each one of you is worthy of full equity, but in ways that honor your distinct cultures, languages, and communities.
0: Mm -hmm. Love that. Okay. Thank you for sharing that, Cindy. Um, And uh, Terry mentioned um, earlier uh, that we definitely uh, see you as a a hero. And we've, excuse me, we've been following your work Um not just as uh, social workers, or as uh, folks who have are now working in academia, but also just as mothers. And uh, Terry and I are both mothers. And I think that uh, I want to take this time to just thank you for the work that you have seen, or sorry, the work that you have done and where you've seen that injustice, or um, where you've seen the discrepancies and that you have you've created a platform, you have a voice that speaks for our children. Um, and so I, I really appreciate the work that you do. And and my children will benefit uh, from the work that you do. And so I just want to take that opportunity to, to say that out loud. Um, one of the things that Terry and I have talked about, so when we ready to interview you we our minds were everywhere we were like we could talk about anything (laughs) like we could (laughs) talk about anything and everything with you cindy and so um some of the work that you have done and that some of the work that i've used with my students and uh have and used when i was in uh, my undergraduate as well was your breath of life theory right and I I just, I would love for you to, you know, uh, we know when we talk about breath of life theory for folks who maybe haven't, um, you know, researched or read about uh, the theory, what I love about the breath of life theory is that it really brings us back to our relational Mm worldviews and it really brings us back to an understanding of, you know, plural realities. um, And when I, have you know read and researched and used this work in my work, it really reminds me that we can't measure mystery, right And that you know there are so many understandings and truths that exist in our communities. and you talked about this in your introduction about how children across the board across our country uh, you know need to have their their needs met from their own understandings, from their own truth, from their own culture, from their own language base, etc. Um, And so is there something that you wanna, like, again, I want folks to just kind of have a broad understanding of the work itself so that they can dive deeper into it um, in their own research or in their work. Sure, well, it all came
2: from my reading of a lot of other people's works where I would see First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples having to rely on Western theories and in order to get academic degrees. You know, it's so interesting. in right. Academia where they say all new knowledge is welcome as long as you can cite someone else who said it before. <laughs> that, that was really a closed door to our knowledge. <laughs> and I uh, I was doing my doctorate degree and I, I was playing around with these Western theories, but uh, they just weren't working for me. And actually, I was in a a good situation for myself in that uh, when I did my doctorate, I was surrounded by many uh, different knowledge holders of the First Nations communities, not only in Canada, but around the world. So I didn't need that in my scholarly work because I had that in my lived reality. And I went to a doctoral program where there were no First Nations, Métis or Inuit instructors and no other First Nations, Métis or Inuit students. And this offered a great opportunity for me, which might surprise people. And that is that <laughs> I was able to kind of i'd write down on a notebook when I fundamentally thought differently than other people, and then I would go talk to elders and knowledge holders to figure out if it was just a quirky cyndhiism thing that had nothing to do. <laughs> or whether this was really something that was fundamental that I needed to drill down on, and what I found overall is I was using words like um, connectivity and holism and um, you know, seven generations, those phrases, I was using them, but I hadn't really challenged myself to really think about what they mean. What does it really mean if you look at the world from that lens? What does it really mean when we say things are in balance? So that led me on to the path of saying, okay, well, I can show people why I need to write down what these things that are that I think are different. And then I can show people from that lens why things like anti-oppressive practice, things like um, ecological theory, uh, even Maslow's hierarchy and needs, even though it's based on the Blackfoot it's, it's, uh, teachings, it's done in a Western way. So why all those things don't fit? And then I'm gonna um, you know, take a stab at writing this stuff down that I have been gifted over the years from different indigenous knowledge holders, which fundamentally shapes the way I think about things. The other thing that I really started to get interested in, I've always had an interest in physics and in the natural sciences. And I actually think that the theoretical frameworks in the natural sciences are far more akin to First Nations ontology than the social science theories are. Mm -hmm. In a couple of ways. One is that they're based on the natural world, And number two, they are not, they are looking almost for unified theory. So it's not like segmentation of breaking things down, like we got queer theory and all these other feminism theory. Like there's an understanding that you have to look at all of it, all of the interconnections to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And in physics, they were pursuing, um, since Einstein, the theory of everything. But Mm -hmm. that's exactly what. You know, I understand First Nations ontology to be is a challenge to create a theory of everything, where we are a part of the world in which we live across expansive time, and that where reality is multidimensional. So how do we begin this conversation? And I was very clear that I didn't have all the answers. And that's another thing that I related to in the pure sciences, is that they don't have one person sitting down in an office writing up a theory. It is a worldwide community of people contributing to the knowledge. And that's always Mm -hmm. the way that we've done things. So I put the breath of life theory out there as a way, as an invitation for others to build on it, to go down that path of kind of, if we were to create a um, theory of everything, for First Nations, what would it look like? And then how does that change the, the way that we situate ourselves and our communities in the world? So that's where it, that's where it comes from.
1: Mm-hmm. Amazing. It was, it was interesting. Cause as you started talking about that, Amber's looking at me and she points at me and, <laughs> and, 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 out, that's you because I'm currently in a, uh, uh, my graduate in social work um, and one of the things again is, is there's three of us in the cohort that are Indigenous uh, but again a lot of you know one of the conversations I had in our online class this week was that um, I'm in a program that is specifically the curriculum is on Western practices and theories and so when I look at the percentage of Indigenous children in care in our province it that doesn't match up in, in terms of what our curriculum looks like and how we are not learning about Indigenous perspectives and we no, are not learning about Indigenous healing practices and how to work with Indigenous families um, or implementing those as social workers. And so, you know, I'm constantly challenged as an Indigenous person within the classroom about really You know, wanting to ensure that I'm sticking to my roots and what I've been taught and and the way that I grew up and and the elders and the knowledge keepers who I've learned from um, and trying to honor them in those spaces. Um, And so it's it's thank you for sharing that, because I think that, you know, I definitely one of the things that I said going into this graduate program was that knowing it's a Western institution was that I will cite and use as much Indigenous scholars um, within my work. Um, and understanding and respecting the knowledge that has been shared with me. Uh, one really quick thing, it was interesting because I think it was within one of my first class there, it was an advanced theories class and we were talking about all these different great theories. And there were, that day we were focusing on attachment theory. And as I'm listening to it, I'm critiquing it, but I'm thinking about it from an Indigenous perspective. And my question was to my instructor was, What about our spiritual attachment? Like as Indigenous people, we are spiritual people. What happens to our spirit when we're taken away? What happens to our children's spirit when we're taken away? And so she kind of just looked at me and was like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But again, like these are the questions um, that I have. You know, and so it's, it's definitely created opportunities for me um, in in the area and where I will, will do my research. So thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and you know, one of the things uh, around attachment theory, I was blessed to be in Australia on a panel with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And we were talking about attachment theory. And I one of the lessons I see it is a human to human attachment theory. It doesn't, for example, conceptualize attachment as being to the land, right? You've been right. that same land for thirty thousand years. Um, what does it mean when you're separated from the land? Um, it doesn't even go there. And but one of the things I think is a challenge on our side is we have to be better at explaining to ourselves and explaining to those around us what that difference is. And so, for example, one of the things I put out in that breath of paper difference is we think our ancestors are mostly right and Western science thinks their ancestors are mostly wrong. Therefore, they, they have privilege, new knowledge. Um, And they're not a remembering culture. uh, Right, they think a longitudinal study is 20 years when that's just nothing. Uh, When you look at the testing of of First Nations knowledge across generations, So I think we have to in those moments really challenge ourselves to say, what is it that I think differently? Mm -hmm. How does that, how is that different than the other folks in my class? And then what does that mean in terms of the types of contributions that I can make to the dialogue? Because all of these theories, these Western theories, are really culture, are not culturally neutral. They're culturally loaded. And that's the interesting thing about academia Mm -hmm. is often they'll put up something like attachment theory and claim it culturally neutral
0: without
2: ever testing that presumption.
0: Yes. Yes. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, when Terry was talking, I thought, I, I was thinking about, and yes, I did point at her, I'm like, that's you. Um, and I think about the experience of not only uh, Indigenous folks in classrooms where they don't see themselves, or they don't hear about them, like they don't hear um, themselves, or that there's, like you said, there's this, you know, kind of pan- Uh, approach to, uh, you know, you can take this theory and apply it to anybody, um, that kind of uh, knowledge base. And it doesn't, that's, I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, And I think that there is, you know, like you said, there's specific ways that we can look at these theories and say, now this, you know, if you were working with a family, uh, a marginalized family from this area, et cetera, these things can apply differently or don't apply and they don't fit for a lot of folks. Now one of the things that um, I thought about as well was um, you know if we have social not just social work students in the classrooms, but also social workers out working in the field right now. and if they are you know self-identified indigenous folks and they're working on it with a team of folks maybe in child and family services, Or maybe in the healthcare system or in the education system, and they are the only, for example. Um, And they make up, you know, of the team. They're the only visibly, you know, visible minority or they think Indigenous in everything that they do, you know. And I think about how our systems don't support our social work practitioners to be and think and know Indigenous out in the field. And so, you know, how do you think uh, or what what are your thoughts about, you know, how do we, you know, stay deeply rooted and not lose ourselves out in the field or in the classrooms as Indigenous folks um, when we are practicing within systems that are fundamentally racist, that are fundamentally oppressive? How do, how do we not lose ourselves out there? Cindy? I think there's a couple of things that I found at work. I don't have a complete answer
2: to that question. I worked probably for 25 years in systems where often I was the only indigenous person in the whole system that I knew about. Um, so I've had that experience. I guess for me, I've always concentrated on two things. One is, what are my values? Second, what is the difference I want to make in the world? And then that evokes the question as to how courageous will I be when I need to give Mm -hmm. value to those expressions, or give expression to those values, knowing that I may have to take a personal sacrifice, what I call moral courage. Um, I found as long as... I had the integrity to live those values. And as long as I was clear about what the difference is that I was, you know, it's not really that you choose to take. It's the difference that you were born to take. Um, mm-hmm. that you can be really clear in that, but you also have to have humility and that mm-hmm. you need to understand that you have to do right, not be right. And mm-hmm. that involves a lot of, um, discussion. It involves in getting authority from the communities for which we are working with, And to understand that um, we have to remain focused on what that difference is that and be accountable for that in transparent and inclusive ways. Now, sometimes that's possible within the mainstream system. And sometimes you have to do what I did, which was create two independent NGOs and do it out of that, uh, do it that way. Right. Yeah. That's the kind of yeah. thing that happens when you realize that the organization you in, you're in is a tool to accomplishing the goal you were born to have. Hmm. And me, you hmm. can look at it as a, a, you know, if you're the only person in an organization, you can say, well, that's terrible for me. But for me, it was actually, I thought it as what a great opportunity, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I can really do those things, like really see how I think. Really do that work about figuring out what I stand for and what I was meant to do. And to Mm -hmm. also think about ways of framing um, the difference I was about to make in ways that other people could understand. I think sometimes we throw around words, even like words like treaty and self-determination. And we do that with the presumption that other people understand what we mean.
1: I found
2: for myself that I had to become much more disciplined in that and learn a lot more about framing. And so it became a question of how do I frame this in a way that others can understand? And then the next thing is, how do I involve them in peaceful and respectful ways in the solution, in ways that not only uplift the issue I'm doing, but also uplift the humanity of those who I invite into the solution.
0: Yes. And so listening, and, and, and again, my mind's just going 100 miles an hour, and I think about how, um, you know, in consideration of, of what's happening, you know, politically and in our, you know, in our environmental climate, in our political climate, in the emotional climate of what's happening in our world right now, or across, you know, Canada, US, and in other territories uh, on Turtle Island, thinking about you know the role of social workers in movements Um, and the role of social workers uh, and one of the questions that you posed earlier when we were talking was you know where are those or I don't know how this question came up maybe it was you that posed it Cindy I could be wrong but where are the social workers in these movements and how are we ensuring that social workers are developing an activist or an advocacy identity like what does that even mean to be an advocate because again I think that social work education is really built on social justice we hear that all the time in our classrooms is social justice social justice we have to be these you know these folks who are understanding of what social justice is what are the injustices uh, and then how do we become advocates in that But I I, I really want to just kind of create a space for you, Cindy, to talk about that. Like, where are the social workers in these movements? You know, are we really involved in social justice? Uh, Like, what does that look like, you know, in in our work and in our classrooms? Well, one
2: of the things I think is really interesting for me is that social work does claim that place of social justice as a professional responsibility. And yet, to my knowledge, social work hasn't led any of the major social movements in this country, let alone around the world. We tend to be behind the curve. And it's also interesting to me that we think we have a right to do it without having invested the professional discipline that it takes to do advocacy. And I I think that people think advocacy is benevolent. And so when I teach advocacy, I actually spend about 60% of the course time on people really developing that insight and discipline to do right in ways that bring dignity to those for which you are standing up with on, on authority from. Um, and I think that what people think is that it can be an undisciplined thing in social work where you just pick up a sign and go out and march and you don't really have to pay much attention to whether you're doing right. Um, there's this presumption almost that we are right. We are doing benevolent things. And I don't think that's right. I think. That the skills around advocacy um, can be used for both ill or for a benevolent cause, and if we just teach right. the strategies without that that discipline, then I think that we really are contributing to the problem. And social work has not equipped people with the discipline. Um, it's not taught mm-hmm. people to be courageous um, and to be morally courageous, not just for an issue that where you're going to benefit from, but morally courageous in a way you're going to take a hit professionally or personally for a group of people who will never notice to be thankful to you you have to fall in love with a generation or a group of people who you will never know that's the duty hmm. and fall in love with them enough that you're prepared to take a risk and i find that social work by and large are a bunch of scarity cats i hate to say it but I would agree with you (laughs) and you know I also think that there's too much narcissism in social work when I think about the things we stand up for it's usually oh well some change in a code of conduct well I'm uninterested (laughs) Um, I you know I'm more interested in how do we how do we um, in a way that uplifts, um, in my case, First Nations children, their families, and their nations. How do we address the inequalities that are down in their lives in ways that uh, um, also raise a generation of non-Indigenous kids who won't put up with this stuff anymore? <laughs> right. Right. And how do we base right. movements on love? And I think the big thing Mm. that's missed in uh, activism is people think oh well you got to get out there and be angry or crying and that's what a movement is based on well that's what some movements are based on but if you really take a close eye at it what you're going to find is those movements are actually just really fizzle out quickly the most sustainable social Mm -hmm. movements the ones that move the bar forward are all premised on love and the reason for that is Mm -hmm. you can stand up for a human right, for example, while you violate that human right. You can't stand up for a human right just for you or those you care about while neglecting that same human right for other people around the world of different diversities. If you base a movement Mm -hmm. on love, neither of those things is tenable with the way that you're doing with it. And I also think that we spend way too much time on procedure, advocating for procedures like inquests or inquiries, uh, instead of really being disciplined in mapping out the difference we want to make. So at the Caring Society, we say, we want to raise a a generation of First Nations children who have a fair chance to grow up safely in their families, get a good education, be healthy and proud of who they are. Saying that, that leaves Hmm. open a whole array of strategies I can use to get there. But if I demanded Mm -hmm. an inquiry on child welfare, the chances are I'd get it. And the chances are the recommendations sit on the shelf. And I have blown my one chance to embrace the public's attention. So I think that we need to be. I think there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of courageous conversations to be had within the social work movement so that we actually are aligned with what we say we are we stand for which is social justice I don't think we are I don't think we do much of that
0: right and you reminded me Cindy um, when you were talking about um, some teachings from my late grandmother and uh, I often uh, have reflected on you know how she raised us uh, and how you know she, we lived down the road from my grandmother so we spent a lot of time with her and and one of the things that I've, uh, I share with others and I, I think about often is about how, what, is, what are revolutionary acts? What does it mean to be part of a revolution? And oftentimes, you know, I think, you know, and in, in my life, I've thought about revolutionary acts as being, you know, very aggressive and, you know, flipping tables and, you know, saying no more and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of aggression. Is how I've you know perceived revolution, revolutionary acts or revolution, and um, it wasn't until I started thinking about my grandmother and the way that she treated other folks, the way that she treated people when they walked inside of her house, the way that she welcomed and greeted people, the way that she treated her grandchildren, and my grandmother being uh, a mother of. Um, 10 children who were removed from her care forcibly and sent to Indian residential school. And my grandmother was one of the most revolutionary people I've ever known. And she was revolutionary in her Mm -hmm. kindness and her love and the way that she demonstrated kindness and love and humility and never turning anybody away. And the way that she greeted folks when they walked in. And I remember being a little girl and, you know, being responsible for taking care of the tea when she had visitors come over or when I would like braid her hair, or put her hair in a ponytail and she'd be sitting in her rocking chair whistling and then I'd, I'd go on her lap and she would rock me. And I, I think about how my grandmother was a revolutionary human being and she really taught me about how revolution can be love and it can be kindness and it can be gentle Um, and still be super revolutionary, right? And so uh, you reminded me of her when you were talking about love and the movement of love and how it doesn't always have to look like, I mean, it can look like a lot of things, but it doesn't always have to look like, you know, aggression or rage. It can look like, it can look gentle and kind. It is that because Um, you're loving, it
2: doesn't mean that you don't speak the truth. That you speak the truth in a way that uplifts uh, uplifts everyone. Um, Because the truth is a gift. Um, Sometimes it's difficult to hear. Um, But if you respect someone enough to share the truth with them, then you're, and and you do that in a way that invites their own humanity into being part of change. And that you do it in a way that you or yourself are not self-righteous. Because I always say to my students, the more self-righteous you think you are, the more likely you are to be wrong. Uh, Because in the human condition, we know that there's all these shades of gray. And we all have to be open to seeing those. And again, in doing right versus being right. And I worry sometimes that we have not taken advantage of learning from people like your elders. And like, and sometimes we even criticize. Like, for example, I was raised to believe that every day I had to dress up. And the reason for mm-hmm. that was that the teaching behind it was every day you're gonna, um, you would dress up for important people in Western society. But every day you're going to meet important people. That might be the person who's driving the bus. It might be the person uh, who's a homeless person on the street. You're going to be meeting all kinds of important people. So you dress up for all of them because everybody's important. It's a different way of thinking about it, right? Um, I think that you know we need mm-hmm. to uh, bring that dressing up, uh, not just in the way we look appear physically. But in the way that we prepare ourselves to greet the world, uh, dress up yes, because everything yeah. and everybody is important. Right. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for that. One of um, one of the questions that I have uh, for you, Cindy, is just if there's anything, what would you want social workers to know? Because we do have also a lot of social work students um, and faculty who listen to this podcast. And so is there anything that you would like to share that you think is really important that our social work social I think that um,
2: they, we do need to look at the structural and systemic issues that under, uh, undermine the success of pe- uh, and ability for people to live fully as who they are and focus on that. So, you know, I'd be looking a lot at the question of equity Uh, We know that equity is the closest thing we have to a silver bullet in the social sciences. If we were able to eradicate the inequalities between, say, First Nations kids and other kids, we would reduce the incarceration rates, Mm -hmm. we would improve the economy, those kids would be getting a better education that reflects who they are, there'd be less kids in child welfare. Um, All of that is tied to that root cause. So I think too often we look at the symptoms and we don't go after the problem. I'd say is that hmm. we need to develop the moral courage um, to really stand in the winds of discrimination. And to also, therefore, develop within ourselves the tools and knowledge to be able to do that in a loving and respectful and way that brings dignity to the people that we're uh, standing there with. That is, I think, a serious challenge and opportunity for social work. And I think what we showed, too, is that, you know, people get overwhelmed. They think, well, well, you know, in our case, where we've taken on the government of Canada, they think we're some huge organization <laughs> when we actually have two full-time employees. And that shocks a lot of people, right?
0: That and shocked me just people, now, yes. You know,
2: when you're in a situation where you're the only one or you're really small and you're going up against something that's very big, don't look at it as a disadvantage. Think first about what are the gifts that that situation brings to you. So as a small organization, first of all, we, were, uh, we don't get any government funding. Uh, they cut us 100% when we filed the legal case. But instead of feeling, oh, my God, we're not going to be funded, um, took, the, uh, took the alternate approach, which was, we, if the only thing we accomplish in this case is showing that this generation of First Nations children, that we love them enough to stand up for them, then that's good. Um, that is more than, that's better than, um, you know, taking government money and somehow not standing up for doing the right thing. We really need to think that kind right. of stuff through. Uh, small organization's quick, It's uh, could be creative, and there's nothing more threatening to a big organization than a small group of people with integrity who uh, have nothing to lose. And after all funding, we had nothing to that's lose. Not and so true. even up until today, we have no government money. Uh, we've been offered government money and we turn it down because the governments don't meet our ethical screen for not creating harm kids. <laughs> and so that's where that discipline yes. comes in, is you've got to be prepared to say no to money and no to opportunity in favor of achieving that clear vision and know who you're there for. In our case, it was the First Nations children, families, and communities. That's who we were in service of, not the government of Canada or any other stakeholder.
0: Right, right. Um, and so we're, we're just mindful, we're loving this conversation. We're mindful of time, um, but we really want to hear, um about your work uh, with the First Nations uh, 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 Caring Society, and then also with Jordan's principal. Um, And can you tell us a bit about, because again, I've mentioned earlier that a lot of the folks that um, come into our classrooms or come into spaces, social work spaces, don't always have an understanding of what uh, Jordan's Principle is and the foundations uh, and the beliefs of, you know, of where Jordan's Principle came from or the roots of that. And so I think it's a really important uh, thing to discuss so that uh, broader folks, so folks out there can have an understanding of uh, Jordan's Principle. Sure. Would you mind well, sharing Jordan's some of that, Cindy?
2: is named after a little boy named Jordan River Anderson from Norway House Cree Nation. And Jordan uh, was born in Winnipeg General Hospital, and he had to stay there for the first two years of his life. But after that, had he been any other child other than a First Nations child, he would have been discharged to a family home, and Jordan's life would have taken off from there. But what a lot of people don't understand is the federal government funds services on reserve, whereas the provinces fund it for all others. But provincial laws for children apply on reserve, things like health education, child welfare. And in Jordan's mm-hmm. case, the federal government uh, said, well, this is a provincial health issue, so the province should, of Manitoba should pay for Jordan. And the province of Manitoba said, nope, he's a First Nations kid, so that's not us to pay for it. And then even within the federal government itself, Health Canada and Indian Affairs began arguing over who to pay. the The tragedy is, that they decided to leave Jordan in the hospital while they argued over payment for his services. And he stayed there for two and a half years before, as his sister Gerlene says, he died of a broken heart and died in the hospital, never having spent a day in a family home in 2005. We knew as of that point, because mm-hmm. we we're actually running another research study at the time, that we found in just 12 of the First Nations agencies, and there's over a hundred of them in the country, in just 12, we found 393 other kids in exactly the same quagmire. So we work with Jordan's family, his community in Norway, House Cree Nation, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, and the Assembly of First Nations, and we came up with Jordan's principle, which is very simple. It, should, it says, First Nations kids should be able to access the services they need when they need them, free of any discrimination, uh, because First Nations. And Canada yes. um, adopted it in the Parliament, and then they implemented it in a way that no child ever qualified. So we had to litigate against Canada, um, take them to court, to get them to implement Jordan's Principle. And it wasn't really until 2017, when after several non-compliance orders, that we finally got some measure of compliance from Canada. And so now Jordan's Principle's available to First Nations children on and off reserve, and they are to also for individuals and groups of children and you can apply for a service and when i say service or product i don't mean just those that are available to non-indigenous kids jordan's principle takes account of the fact that first nations children have different needs and greater needs owing to the discrimination that they've experienced as well as the colonial impacts on their cultures and languages So um, you can just get on a phone, as soon as you have a professional or elder uh, with a note saying, look, this is what my child needs, you can call 1855-JP-CHILD and make a referral for Jordan's Principle and request those services. And there are timelines now that the federal government has to comply with in responding to those. Having said that, we are still litigating against Canada on Jordan's Principle. Canada does not agree with our definition of a First Nations child. We say it's not the Indian Act. I think the Indian Act colonial pieces out. We say it's self-identification along with recognition by your community that you are a First Nations person. So um, that is still being ruled on by the tribunal. Second thing is, um, when there's right. group services, there seems to be clusters of children with similar needs. So, for example, maybe there's a group of children in any given nation that requires um, speech therapy. So, why not create uh, hire a speech therapist for the community versus sending the kids out, you know, to get the service? When we have a exactly. speech therapist, we need a exactly. room and an office space for that person to operate and to, to be able to visit with families. And so, We're uh, dealing with the question of capital before the tribunal. So although uh, the tribunal case is really a landmark, it's the first case in the world that we know of where a government has been held accountable for its current treatment of First Nations kids in order to stop its discrimination. um, Canada has been very resistant to implementing the orders. They're now at nine non-compliance orders. So what we need is people like you to... Get on to the government of Canada, tag Trudeau in a Twitter feed, and say, You got to <laughs> principle, stop fighting First Nations kids. And you can go onto our website, any member of the yes. public can, and you can find free and easy ways you can make a difference. Um, just uh, and it doesn't cost you any money to do it, is to address inequalities like Jordan's principle. Yes, yeah, yeah,
1: thank yeah. you. Thank you um, so, Cindy, we're just we're um, just being aware of time. Is there any, as we wrap up here, is there any closing comments that you have? I would just say, you know,
2: don't do today? what I did there for a while, which is I was waiting around for some superhero to come and address all these inequalities for patients' kids. I was absolutely convinced I was not the person to do it. I wasn't smart enough. I didn't know enough. There's somebody out there who's going to do it, so I'll just keep my finger mm. in the dike. And try to work with the families I'm working with. We all need to take advice from a poem that was in a book my aunt gave me years ago, and it says, um, "When you step across that place where light leads into darkness, faith is knowing that there will be something solid to stand on, or you'll be taught to fly." And so mm-hmm. that's our goal, a role as social workers: is we have to stand, step across the where the uh, light leads into darkness. And we need to have the humility, the persistence and the discipline to learn about advocacy so that we are fully prepared to ensure that everyone has a solid place to stand on or they'll be taught to fly.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. I love it. Terry had that written down actually prior to this. So uh, that obviously resonated with Terry as well.
1: I had actually, I had seen it in an article last year. Um, It stuck with me because, you know, it was something that um, I had, I went through a rough time and I was seeing a therapist and it was interesting because the therapy, you know, I was going to my regular therapy sessions and she was like, wow, you're doing so well. Like you handle this really well. (laughs) And I'm just wondering like what, Where do you get your strength from? Like she was like, I'm curious. And you know, and my response to her was faith. I have faith that, you know, we are I'm going through a difficult time, but I know that at the end of it that there will be something beautiful, that there will be, you know, it's not always gonna be this way. It's not always gonna be this hard. I'm not always gonna struggle like this. That, you know, maybe in a couple months, maybe in a year, things are gonna look different. Um, and there's going to be beauty, and so when I had seen this article, and this was during the same time, I was like, "Wow, it's it's beautiful." Yeah, and, and it I think what volumes, happens when so you get a little you. older, and I'm getting a little,
2: quite a bit older now, is that you start to realize what <laughs> is it that you're really afraid of losing. And for me, it's not the physical mm-hmm. things that I have in my life. I drive a, a little tiny car, a Honda Fit. I don't care what happens to that. <laughs> I. I you know there's lots of things people because when we're afraid it's about what people can take away from us. So I'm really invited by my family and others to think about what is it that can be taken away from me that would drip me to my bones And really what it was is my values. Um, if I mm-hmm. gave away if I my values were taken from me if I had to live in contradiction of those values, I would no longer feel good about who i was in fact i would no longer know who i was and in that i actually found a lot of Mm. freedom because i realized that no one can take your values away from you only you can give them away
0: yeah 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 and and that and just when you said that it reminded me of something that one of my mentors dr leona makokas used to say to me um years back was, you know, and my mother as well, um, would say things like you go and get your education, my girl, whatever that might look like, whether that's, you know, you know, going to a post-secondary institution or learning more about, you know, ceremony, but you go and yeah. get that education. Cause no one can ever take that from you. No one can ever take your education from you, whatever, you know, whatever you've been taught, the wisdom that you've acquired, no one can take that from you. And I've, I've held that near and dear to me, um, over the years, is recognizing that what I know and what I think I know, and the people who have taught me what I think I know, um, no one can take that away from me. And that's all been done through relationship. Yeah, so absolutely. definitely, no one can take that from me. So
1: yeah,
0: your freedom. Yeah, yeah, yes. Well. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Terry and I are so excited uh, to uh, publish this episode. And again, this episode is going to be published or will be published in light of National Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, And we want to ensure that uh, the folks that are our listeners, we hope that you enjoyed our our episode today with Dr. Cindy Blackstock. Um, I, I loved this conversation. I learned a lot. So thank you for your teaching, Cindy. Two Crees in a pod.